you are now looped into the world of Pam. Hi, I'm your host Maya. This is By All Means Necessary, the podcast. It's not a radio program, it's not a television show, Mm-mm. it's the goddamn podcast. You know that thing that you can listen while you do about like 50 other things around the house? Yeah. While you feel like I'm the friend in your ear and you love it, you enjoy it. Yep, that's the one. About five minutes ago, I have found this letter, an actual physical letter that I have posted to my friend back home the first time I came to the UK when I was learning Spanish in bachillerato in like baccalaureate. And it's just in such broken Spanish, which I mean, I still speak only broken Spanish. But I was just like, why did I write it in Spanish to a friend from back home? And there is one line in this letter that defines my fucking life. Perdóname si cometo errores graves, no fue mi intención. It's like, forgive me if I make great mistakes, it wasn't my intention. Which is just such a lifestyle, okay? It's a mood. It's literally like the beginning of this podcast. It's like, sorry, I'm gonna make like about 100 mistakes, but it's, it's not my intention. It's just how I live my fucking life. Well, now that I took that off my chest and stopped fucking laughing, I wasn't supposed to cover this story this week at all. I had a completely different thing planned that hasn't been covered by like anybody. Well, only one podcast, but then... I was like, okay, that's gonna be a short story anyways. So let me just, you know, find another short story for like 10-15 minutes. And then that second story turned to be pages and pages long. Literally, after like a couple of hours, I was like, oh, okay. Well, then this is a story. And we're gonna keep the other one for the next month. And I was on brand with that intro story because this is about letters as well. You're like, oh, Maya, yet another letter, mister. We didn't like the previous one. Well, then you're missing out, because letter mysteries are the best, okay? Okay. Because they're just next level creepy, you never know who's writing, you don't know who is watching. Also, this story might have been a prequel to you, you know, the Netflix series with the Gossip Girl guy, Penn Badgley. For all I know, the whole plot of that story was based on this. So to give you a setting, as always, we are gonna go to a small town, because this shit only happens in small towns. Just kidding, I mean, kind of. Like, whenever I think of stalking, I'm like, it would be really hard for somebody to stalk me in London. Like, they would really need to be just living in the area. And then, what a sad fucking life, man. You're just like a zone for stalking somebody. Yeah, Maya, give them the address as well. Why don't you? So this is happening in Westfield in the US. So this is the idyllic setting for the... And the Griffith show didn't Google it, probably exists. (laughs) Trust Wikipedia. And this article says, like, it's the kind of place where a new neighbor might greet you with a welcoming note. It's 45 minutes from New York, so it's kind of, you know, like, that suburbs area where you go for cheaper houses. But it's fucking Wisteria Lane. Is Wisteria Lane the house? The Desperate Housewives Lane? Yeah, it's that type of vibe, okay? It's just, like, small town city, but, like, huge houses, posh people. So, 30,000 residents and largely well-to-do families. So, in 2040s, it was announced as the 18th wealthiest in New Jersey, and it's also 30th safest town in the US. Which also means that Westfield is 86% white. But between 2014 and 2019, there was a family that was targeted in Westfield. Rhoda's family was targeted by the letter writer called The Watcher. In this story, we have a crime. We know our victims, but not the perp. What was their motive?
Brodus family finally manages to sell this house in August only last year, after actually never properly moving into it, even though they have owned it for about five years. So they finally found a buyer, and the six-bedroom Dutch colonial was sold for $959,360 in August last year. They were also, for the longest time as well, and I think still are, in the process of suing the previous owners because they never mentioned that there was the watcher, they never mentioned that they were receiving letters as well. So they are suing them for common law fraud, equitable fraud and emotional distress, among other things. So, what happened in sort of semi-chronological order that I could kind of piece together here? Well, 2014, these this couple gets a nice house for themselves, they're like proper chuffed and proud, cause yeah, they worked hard, they got this house in the nice neighborhood. And in June 2014, Derek is spending his day repainting various rooms inside the house, so they haven't even moved in at this point. So he's like, hey, let me just, you know, take a break, go outside, catch the mailbox. He finds like the bills, you know, they're changing the bills in their names, so he finds those bills, there's also a plain white envelope addressed to the new owner. And at first the note kind of seems like welcoming, it's kind of like, hey, welcoming the new owner, but then it moves to a sinister side. So it starts asking questions like, how did you end up here? And did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? No, I imagine getting something like this and be like, spooked as fuck, like, no, this is haunted, um, uh-uh, this ain't for me, I know I paid, I paid deposit, I know, I know everything, but I'm out. The letter goes on to say, 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched it in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. So at first Derek is like, okay, this is weird as fuck, but let's brush it off, yeah? As he is doing another like paintings, refurbishing, prepping the house for the moving the next, the next few days, there is another letter in the mailbox. And it has questions like this. Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. So now they postpone the moving date, because both Marie and Derek were like, this is not normal, this ain't for me. Couple of days pass and they get yet another letter and they're getting, from what you'll see as well, they're getting like chunkier and chunkier, but it's also the way they're written, like pay attention to how they're written. It's kind of like academic work. These letters are very essay-like. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It's coming for me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend and now it is my enemy. I'm in charge of 657 Boulevard. It's not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. 
So yeah, slightly dramatic, slightly kind of like writing a movie fucking script, also young blood, very fucking creepy. So finally the brother's family actually starts looking at what the fuck is happening, like who lived here before, like who could be the person writing these letters, based on just of these couple of letters. So they look into previous owners, and they find out the house was built back in 1905, and many folks consider it the grandest home on the whole block. Then the Woods family bought it in 1990, and when they placed it on the market in 2014, they received multiple competing offers that exceeded this asking price. So the brother's family is kind of looking at it like, hmm, Maybe one of those losing bidders has had a grudge against them. Quickly, their estate agent told them that one possible buyer had a medical condition that prevented them from the purchase, so, you know, they shouldn't be fucking salty about it, and that another one found a home elsewhere. Finally, they kind of decide, like, okay, cool, we can't just, you know, not move in because of this, so let's just move in temporarily at least, and then see if it dies down, because... You know, they can't rule our life, right? Right? Wrong. Of course, as soon as they move in, the, the watcher just intensifies. So they get another letter. Who am I? Hundreds of cars pass by the house every single day. Maybe I'm in one. Check all of the windows that can be seen from 657 Boulevard. Perhaps I'm in one. So finally, the Brodus family gets the police involved. They're like, this isn't fucking innocent any longer. Let's get the police into our business. And the police immediately gets involved and they investigate the neighbors because those would be the most logical people to be harassing this family. Well, like watching from within, it's in one of these houses. I pass your house by every day. It's like, who the fuck else would be writing these letters? And for the next couple of weeks, the Brodus family maintains the high alert status. So they're just like vigilant at all time. So Derek cancels like all of his work trips and Maria is just keeping a tight rein on the children. So they are slowly becoming paranoid, like they call each other if they disappear from each other's view, you know, like even if it's in the garden, they're like, yep, I can't see you, you know, <laughs> report, please. But still, they didn't want to appear unsociable to the new neighbors. So Derek invited some of them to like inspect the work he's been doing on the house. And during one visit, the neighbor's wife commented that having new young blood in the neighborhood would be welcome. And he's like, young blood? Young blood, you say? What a weird expression. Literally nobody ever uses it but this one person that we are getting letters from. Well, he says that in his head. So uh, Derek is like, yeah, we're not hanging out with neighbors no more. Like, I'm getting more and more paranoid by the day. With time, they're now suspecting everybody. What if it's one of the contract workers? What if it's any of the people working on the house? The, the letters start mentioning literally everybody in their life. So the workers, like personal belongings, even complimented them on the dumpster. Uh, what a kind, what a kind soul this letter writer is. The author knew the ages and the nicknames of all of the children. So it means like it's listening from somewhere. And they suspect it's from the walls, well, because he said it in one of the letters. But like, this is the era of CCTV and of the cameras. Why is nobody kind of searching the house for this kind of shit? Then they start getting involved. It's all getting too personal and too like part of the family, you know? It's kind of like when you listen to the podcast, you're like, oh, it's like I hung out with you. I'm like, but bitch, you, you haven't. Can we actually hang out? Yeah, this is the watcher here. So he is even asking if the child sitting with the easel inside the porch was the artist of the family. It's like, bitch, it's none of your fucking business. 
And now he asks like have they found what's inside the walls and if not they should soon. Here's another letter just to spot the patterns because now well first he's using young blood as he's obsessed with that phrase and just genuinely seems to be focusing more on children. So this is one letter before Broduses have moved into the house. Make sure to observe stuff that he repeats during these letters. There'll definitely be a test afterwards. Yeah, yes, kids. Yeah, you heard that right. And then also how he makes it so obvious that he knows this house inside and out. Which, you know, is it a trick? Or has this person actually lived at this house? Will the young blood play in the basement? Are they too afraid to go down there? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is too far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will you sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedroom facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. What are you planning? I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Broda's family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. You don't say you freak, like we, we picked up the vibe from now, we know you're watching, we know you don't have a life or hobbies or just anything and you're just perving on fucking little children. I'm just trying to picture how terrifying it is to have the conversations that Brodesses must have had with their children. Just trying to normalize this constantly and just being like, yeah, just ignore things like don't go to the basement, don't go to the windows of the bedrooms because somebody is watching, you know, you kind of need to like normalize that in the world of the children it just must be fucking hard like no wonder they moved out the first fucking chance they had every time the brothers family tries to chill out and you know not think about this socialize with the neighbors they kind of get even more and more paranoid each time because well they have this barbecue with the neighbors right so derek starts chatting with john schmidt a neighbor two doors down from 657 where they live Schmidt kind of starts bitching about this family next to them, so like in between the two, that's owned by Peggy Langford. This is why, it's just so thankful I don't live in fucking small towns, just this bitching would piss me off. I mean, it pissed me off when I lived back home. It's like everybody knows everything. It doesn't matter how many thousands of people are there, everybody knows everything. Mm. This does not align with my Scorpio vibes. Mm-mm. I'm the one that knows everything and nobody else knows shit about it. Mm-hmm. That's that's just how it works. So Peggy was 90 years old, but she shared a home with several of her children. Each was at least 60 years of age. So Schmidt is like, yeah, they're fucking strange, but they don't pose a threat. They're all kind of old as fuck. But they've also been living there since the mid-1960s. So if anybody was to have observed everything, known everything, and just actually had the inside kind of information about that family would be them because they're literally next door they would hear what's happening with the brodesses so derek sets the police and in particular detective lugo to you know just just makes his rounds go investigate this fucking family next door and lugo tells him like yeah we already looked into them we already brought michael one of the sons in for questioning week after the letters have arrived but they really needed a confession here because i didn't mention one thing and very important thing so remember circle writers there the letters were handwritten so you could be like okay cool handwriting test you know dna all that shit here the letters were typed 
You couldn't judge by the handwriting, who just judged by the tone of voice, by the language. Detective immediately kind of had like his hunch about Michael because of how well-spoken he was. So he was like, I can't just go off on that, but yeah, there is something there. The watcher is that person on the team who is like using super big words to sound all nice and like, yeah, I totally know what we are on about. You could say this team has had an exponential growth. The company has grown so much. Oh no, Jame, the company has actually grown exponentially. Like, yeah, bitch, that's what I was saying. But I'm saying it better because I'm using a big ass word, okay? Exponentially. Also, sideline, <laughs> sideline here, but who the fuck says young blood unless they are actually fucking ancient? The only bit of DNA evidence that they could actually go off is from one of the envelopes. But I think it was that little of it that they could just tell the gender. And they decided that the DNA presence was feminine, so it was a female writing the letters. So because there were no stamps, because it wasn't actually posted from anywhere, that would mean that, yes, the letter writer was actually feminine. Well, female. <laughs> like, the letter writer was so feminine. <laughs> Just like they didn't have even the other chromosome in their body. Mm -mm. So this drew attention to his next door neighbor again, Abby Langford. And Abby was a state agent herself, so they kind of start speculating maybe she felt some jealousy about the hefty commission from the sale of the house next door. So maybe she's like, well, look at this estate agent, they got like some next level money, and here I am just because I'm fucking old. Doesn't mean I can't sell houses, okay? I, I could have done this better. Plus, remember how most of the letters mention some form of greed in some sense? But they test her for DNA, she was willing to give it away, and that proves that she's not the person of interest, like she doesn't match the DNA. So the detectives are like, yeah, let's just fucking give it up. <laughs> let's give up this family. And they just don't consider them as suspects any longer. And I think this was kind of like a piss take for the Brothers family, plus just on top of everything and how they were mentioning the children, the children's names. So they move out about like six months after just trying to live in that house. They move, lived with Maria's parents. They were still having like to pay mortgage up until 2019, until they sold it, just because like, they couldn't sell the fucking house. Now, this is all that the investigators have actually had on the case. So each letter was delivered via the US Postal Service Distribution Center in Kearney. Then the first letter was postmarked June the 4th, which was before the house even publicly went onto the market, so before they even knew who was coming in. There was never a for sale sign to begin with on the house. The first contractors arrived onto the property the day before the first of the letters was sent, but no one close, like no neighbor still knew that the work has begun or that it has been sold. Then after some letters, remember the easel part? So detective went actually in to see like how this actually looked from different angles, from the outside, from the inside. And he said that this whole part where they mentioned the daughter, you know, being the artist in the family, this easel isn't actually easy to see from the street. Okay, easel easy to see does not, does not work as a line. <laughs> it would be either the back or the side of the house that would have the best view of it. And then they also took into consideration, by the way, this was like FBI agent, private investigator, security firm, 
like forensic linguists, these guys have brought because they're rich, like they brought everybody on it. Now they also take into consideration the webcams that Brodus is actually put all around the house because as I mentioned they were fucking paranoid and it's exactly what I would have done as well. So they've done background check on Langfords and like pulled up nothing. The FBI profiler actually gave them a profile of a person. So he said that he felt whoever wrote the letters was well read, as we have said. The absence of vulgar and cross language was surprising, especially because the person seems to be pissed. The author was someone that was less macho than most people would might suspect. Well, that might be because they're a female if we are going by the DNA, but okay. And this is the best line. This profiler w also wondered if the author had seen or been inspired by a Keanu Reeves film of the same title. <laughs> like, how chill is this profile? Okay, no, G give me my Spencer Reed. Give me some criminal mind shit. What the fuck is this? So <laughs> he further said, like, he considered the author to be erratic, but unlikely to follow through on any threats. Well, that's great. It's not like they're fucking paranoid. Give them something more concrete, mate. And he suspected it's either the former housekeepers or their offspring that were persons of interest. And they have also considered Brodus' own investigation, because during those six months, Derek was especially paranoid. Like, he said at some point, Marie Aiden thought he was nuts. He was going crazy. Because he would set up webcams during the like around the house, and he would sometimes spend nights crouched in the dark, watching to see if anybody was watching the house at close range. And he has done this thing, which is super fucking smart. And I don't, I mean, I don't even know how would he. He pr they probably were like testing. I can, I can just imagine them testing this with like their children and the whole family. He making it into a game, being like trying not to make these kids paranoid as well. So it's approximate range of earshot. So basically he was estimating who might have heard Maria yelling kids' names. And only a few homes would fit into this criteria. So I can just imagine both of them just like testing this thing out from the outside, screaming each other's names and be like, yeah, no, no, did they hear me? Okay, cool. Further digging by the police confirmed that there were two sex offenders, two registered sex offenders in the area. And the only other odd thing was that another household close to 657 had a peculiar habit, which is what I called it. And that is that they kept a pair of lawn chairs very close to the Brodus' garden and faced it directly. Nope, mm -mm, nope, this is for me, this for me, this is like, no, please arrest them. Please, why the fuck are they staring directly in my garden? Do you know how creepy this is? Why are those launches not like in the middle of their garden or like at their fucking porch where they should be? This isn't the Simpsons, like the family guy. This isn't like some pervy fucking shit. Herbert the pervert. Herbert. Crash. Oh, crash. Oh, crash. You move sexy ass, crash. I very much like to think that I sound similarly to Herbert the pervert. I don't at all, I cannot do voices, but I, I, I tell myself that at night. <laughs> but as you know, because this is a fucking unsolved mystery, none of these leads, none of anything pans out. The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You're stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be at the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room, imagining the life with the rich occupants there. You're in a pub, okay? And somebody's just like, oh, the cows must be crying because I'm not in it. 
you're just like yeah sure you definitely look like the kind of person that the house would cry about sure mate the house must be in bits the house is full of life and young blood God, here we go again then it got old and so did my father but he kept watching until the day he died and now i watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again Okay, Sino, for somebody out, like for somebody well-spoken, you're quite repetitive, mate. I mean, you know how during this podcast I say you know, or so, or and, or all those connectors like a hundred times and it drives you crazy? This guy is that with young blood. Nobody says young blood. Get something else. Put new words into this shit. So even after they moved out, the watcher would write them letters all the way until 2017. And then I'm not sure if he ran out of things to write, but hey, this is the last recorded letter from the watcher. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. One of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and you're too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. Also go adopt some children and start calling them children or like you have your own children or maybe you can't because you're old, huh? Is that what's happening? Is that what's happening? Suspect everything. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the watcher. In some letters he also alluded to stuff like revenge. Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day, after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet, loved ones suddenly die, planes and cars and bicycles crash, bones break. No, mm -mm, none of that, none of that, sir. Can you chill the fuck down? What exactly do you plan to do, sir? Why are you a creep? personal fairy godmother strikes again. The only way again that I can process these letters is when I was about seven years old. I was always a perv. But yeah, this was the disturbing time to be a perv because I was fucking seven. So I would tell my grandma when I would go to school, I'm gonna jump over this guy. This is what I'm gonna do, grandma. <laughs> and I would just describe it in, the, in detail and never fucking have balls to do it because I was seven as <laughs> I mentioned. I was the young blood in this story. It's like, Grandma, listen, when I go in, I'm gonna from the door, jump him up, I'm gonna start kissing him, taking his shirt off. Grandma was like, what the fuck is happening? This bitch watched too many television. Switch the TV off right now. It's like, Grandma, listen, I'm gonna kiss him. I don't care who's watching Grandma. <laughs> She'll be like, okay, Maya, Maya, Maya. You're not gonna do any of that, right? I'm like, nah. <laughs> nah, I'm seven. So yeah, the watcher is doing the same. He's just saying, like, all of these accidents that can happen to them. And never acted on any of that, but this creepy little shit, regardless. And he's probably not seven. Let's do a rundown of suspects. Who could have done this? 
there was a shit ton of speculations, well, especially by the neighbors when, you know, the police tightened the grip and the family actually reported these letters, that this was done by the family itself. So obviously the neighbors started gossiping that this might be a family themselves, you know, just to lower the price on the house and then move into an even bigger home from there on. And then it was that thing that the letters were actually typed, which would mean that the, well, whoever the suspect is would then, in that case, if they weren't, need to do handwriting tests. So obviously you could kind of cast suspicions on there. You could kind of see like where they're coming from, but come on, the effort. I've heard the weirder things, but for you to buy a house, then never to live in it, or to live in it in only cup for only a couple of months and then to move out and not live in the fucking place for years, that's such a waste of money and mortgage like that you can, could have wasted on something else, regardless of how rich you are. Then, of course, there were the Langfords. So Michael Langford and his family... Uh, that lived within the watching distance was one of the main suspects because they have lived there since the 60s. They were also within that earshot area. The watcher mentioned that the father watched the house, so that would have matched like the father of the Langford family. Then there was one other suspect, which was a man referred to as the gamer, who was traced to a car found outside the Broda's family house late one night and his house was also located on the same block as 657 Boulevard. So again, they were like, was this a coincidence or was this connected? But as we know, they ruled everybody out. Who I think did it? Definitely the neighbors. Like, First of all, who the fuck puts the chairs towards your fucking loan? That is the creepiest shit ever. The fact that they were all of age and referring to people as young blood. As I mentioned, nobody fucking uses the language. That the watcher was actually well spoken. That they could see the easel and the girls from the side of the house. The earshot theory. And just like within the letters, stuff that you might not notice. But it's only basically said by, well, people not of like the age of people. Like not people. <laughs> like it's not said by millennials. Like I've heard and learned the expression to a T. But then I never ever used it in my life. And then the greed bit as well, because who would have known like how much the house sold by or how much the house is worth it, you know, how wealthy their next door neighbors is, how wealthy the next door neighbors are, if not the neighbors themselves. Well, because their mom was the estate agent, so the son would have probably known all of this information. They would know not to have handwritten notes because the neighbors could have easily seen their handwriting, you know, all those barbecues, all of the fucking events, school, like, and they would have to undergo a handwriting test as well then. What I can tell you about this is just whoever has done this just had his time, had some fucking time on their hands, which again kind of plays to you towards a retired person, doesn't it? Because whoever fucking has a 9-to-5 job that's actually bringing them the money to live in that neighborhood doesn't have time to do this shit, doesn't have time to hear all of the nonsense happening in the house. Unless they have never discovered certain cameras, but I presume they have because the people are tech-savvy and they have put their own cameras inside the fucking house. So, yeah, that is unless... um, They have diverted our attention completely and this is somebody that stacks heavy and young as fuck, trying to sound like an old person. In which case, man or woman, like, change your fucking lingo, nobody says these things. (laughs) But now, what could have been the motives? 
Yeah, one important thing that I should have probably mentioned since the very beginning is that the neighbors used to live in the house the Brodesses lived. So, yeah, that crystallizes the story for you, doesn't it? Because everything suddenly makes and falls into pieces. But they could just never convince them, convict those fuckers. So now, when you have that into perspective, and just based on everything from how the letters sound like somebody's pissed off, they mention greed as well, I'm kind of thinking maybe the neighbors had to downgrade. Plus, also, if they lived together like their mom is, what, 90-something, the kids are 60-something, if it's like that kind of situation, you know, there's nothing worse than, like, living with your parents as an old person yourself, a retired person, and just in a small town where everybody gossips about it anyway. So did they maybe have to downgrade themselves? And then they were just, like, so jealous over the family next door that they were just like, yep, let's freak them out. If we can't have it, they're not gonna have it. They're not gonna live there. They're not gonna have their peace. Plus, if somebody lived in that house and then moved um, to the house next door, again, in the um, at 657, they could have maybe even placed the cameras that nobody would have spotted because they would have known the place quite literally inside and out. And in that case, you stand no chance because they know of the earshots, they know of the of everything, of how to spy on different angles of it. Man, that's some creepy shit. Get better hobbies, people. Stop talking, people. Get better fucking hobbies. Or just any, any of them. Watch fucking television, there's good stuff out there. That's what I find bizarre. If somebody told me this story was from, I don't know, 1960s, 1950s, I'll be like, oh yeah, people were bored as fuck there. This is like fucking yesterday almost. They stopped writing letters in 2017. That's three years ago. Everything you have access to today, you had access three years ago. They could just, just fucking be on Snapchat the whole day. Well, they're 60, but okay. <laughs> Get better hobbies. This is so intriguing because it's like an inception of a mystery. Because it's kind of like one thing in the other. We don't have the answer to who done it. But we also don't have the answer of like, why did they stop? As in, did they just give up? because they knew the family isn't living there any longer, so there was kind of, like, no point. Did they expect them to move out? Did they know that they were looking and, like, the house is on the market? Or the more plausible option, just like with any killer, any murderer who is on a spree, they either something drastic has happened in their life, or they have been captured for something unrelated, or they have died considering that we think that this is a retired person here. What you think, huh? Hit me up, hit me up. Okay, moving on to the mini, mini story. Okay, as I mentioned last week, we are starting a series here, and it's going to be a series of haunted real-life places. So I thought, let's kick it off with a story that you are familiar with, semi because I covered it as another mini, and that's Salem Witch Trials. So there's a story, there's a haunted house related, connected to this particular story in time. We are talking about Joshua Ward House in Salem, Massachusetts. Why is the name of this state so hard to pronounce? I just don't understand it. Why didn't you change it eventually? No? No? No Massachusetts? No? No nicknames for it? So as you know, this is where the Salem witch trials have happened. And this house, this house kind of stayed there as a testimony, so it's spooky. And it was said it is haunted as shit as well. And it is the exact site where Sheriff George Corwin, 
a major figure in the Salem witch trials, lived, died and was buried in 1697. Although he was later exhumed because people reported they have been seeing him around as a ghost. I didn't go into detail about like naming people who were prosecuting the witches well, the witches under inverted commas, during Salem witch trials, but Corwin was the major figure. He was known as the strangler for the 19 men and women executed for witchcraft. So, you know, like, there's always, there, there's always this, like, a prominent figure coming from the most morbid shits, like the Nazi German, and who is the person that has well, press the button for the most case chambers in Auschwitz. Or there's also a name for the person when they still used to execute people by a bullet to their head. Like, there's a person who had the best cap there, who had the most executions done that way. There's always these morbid people who are just famous for the wrong reasons. So Corwin was one of them. He was the most notorious interrogator, and by interrogator we know where this is going. It's going to torture. And witch killer in the history of Salem. And he built, of course, of course, this is a story that involves a freaking basement like every other creepy shit. So he built a reputation for being the monster because he developed cruel methods for getting witches to admit their allegiance to Satan. One of which included, this is gonna get graphic by the way, in about a second, okay? In like a split second. One of the methods included tying the neck of the accused to the ankles until a stream of blood exploded out of their nose. The, this is not the worst one, the next one is the worst one. So how he did it is, of course, people allowed everybody in the justice system to just fly loosely now. Now you have to be in a courtroom to carry out a miscarriage of justice and send somebody to jail wrongfully. Before, you could do it in your own fucking cellar. So Corwin was also responsible for the death of Giles Corey one of the most alleged warlocks of the Salem witch trials. And Corey refused to confess to the crime, which if you know, like from the episode where I've done the mini on this, you have to confess, otherwise they fucking torture, they'll make you confess, and then they're wrongfully convict you regardless. So Corwin had to come up with the most painful way to get the information out, which will turn out to like that it didn't work, but there's even an image of this. I'm just like, who the fuck portrayed this shit? It's graphic, okay? Graphic warning, cool. So he placed him on like this beam or bed or whatever, and he would put large stones on Giles' chest, slowly crushing him to death while a group of men looked on. It was reported that Giles actually cursed him with his last breath, but Corbin just demanded more and more until Giles just died under a bunch of stones. And there's all of these people who have perpetrated the worst of the worst. They either die as cowards or they die just from the quickest fucking disease or whatever. So he died from some blood ailment. So again, he just died within days. Of course, yeah, let, let's not have them suffer or anything like that. And his family of geniuses thought it's a great idea to bury him in the basement of his own house. Bad idea. Since then, it has been both museum and now it's kind of like a small hotel. And they moved his body from the basement for the fear that it will be desecrated, you know, when it was a museum. Well, duh, like, like let people rest in peace and all that, but mm, does he deserve it? Mm. However, of course, this is said to be like one of the most haunted places in town because visitors to the museum and then later to the hotel have reported that they have been choked by him. There's even one realtor that has taken a picture where you can kind of see like the shadow of a person as well. And it kind of looks like a corpse 
dish in a disheveled state in kind of like the composition state. So why was it named Joshua Ward? Well, Joshua Ward was a ship owner and a merchant who lived in the area. In, and in 1789, he hosted President George Washington, who was visiting Salem during President's tour of New England, and he spent a night at the Ward home. So upon his death, the place was renamed Washington Hotel and was well transformed into a hotel in the first place. But then later it was named Joshua Ward House. And when I was digging for sources for this, well, I don't know if you know of the Atlas Obscura, but if you don't, that's the best newsletter. Sign up to it if you are, you know, keen on knowing weird shit or just learning different things. So this is like more of a tip of like, know before you go if you want to go and visit. And it says like, since it's now a small hotel, visitors who are not booking a room but can still still want to see the house can do so and can ask the people at the reception to give them a tour. But it says like, as long as the people will be happy to show you around, but as long as you're not asking to do so for the purpose of ghost hunting. So you see, tips and props, if you're in Salem, you want to see this shit, just be like, oh yeah, I'm just, you know, I've just heard of this place, I know nothing about it, show me around. You can also ask to stay in the actual room where the president slept by requesting the George Washington King Deluxe. Well, that was easy, because they named it after him. But yeah, from all accounts, I don't think the basement is functioning and that you can actually stay in the basement. Not that anybody would want to, you know, it's like, oh, this is just where the corpse was few few fucking centuries ago you want to stay there you want to never have a functioning life after this visit and if you look it up right now i think the most recently in 2015 it was renamed into the merchant i just love how they're renaming it constantly (laughs) to keep it fresh for just people who are actually just visiting and don't care about these things they're like yeah this is just a normal hotel just don't google it please It's called a merchant, it's just, you know, close to this sightseeing point. Please just don't look up what the history of our hotel is. It's fucking morbid. You're very welcome to stay. We love visitors. We love actually making profit for a change. But yeah, that's us kicking this series of haunted houses. Do you like it? Do you like it? Do you want to send recommendations in? Because I have a couple lined up, but then of course, yeah, you're welcome. Send shit in that you want to learn about and then you know where, you know, you should never travel to or where you should exactly travel to. But now, oh my god, I'm actually looking at my fucking wrist like I have watch on my hand and like you can see me. So you know what time this is? Oh my god, it's time. It's time for your next meeting. You go in there protesting against the managers that sound robotic and like suddenly, because of all of the feedback sessions, now suddenly sound like they give a fuck. And I'm going to read an actual Slack message. This is how they sound like. I am committed to looking after my team. You guys are so important to me. Your mental health means to me more than any chats or tickets can. Totally not the most robotic thing you have heard in your fucking life, right? So that made me want to vomit into my mouth. So uh, yeah, call out those people that make the fucking bullshit statements that make you want to vomit into your mouth. And just ask them, why are you managing this team like this? I understand it comes from the top. I understand you hate this job and you are here for all the wrong reasons. But can you can you stop faking it? In fact, you hating your job would make you more relatable to me than doing this. So uh, can you just understand that? Start building rapport with us that way. And then maybe we can, you know, start moving forward. 
making some improvements now. This team is super important to me. You guys are so important to me. I love my job. <laughs> Please, I laugh, but like in this fucking crisis, these managers need help to find their own jobs as well and escape the fucking jobs that they hate. But yeah, that doesn't justify how they communicate with you, so don't just stand for any bullshit that they try to sell you, be like, you sound hella robotic today, you doing okay, you need me to like switch this broken record a bit, and actually tell you what and how you're doing wrong and give you the fixes, because you clearly can't think of these fixes yourself while you're sucking up to the upper management and trying to relay that information to the ones below, because hierarchy. Until then, until they fix their own broken record and the whole hierarchy of companies and until your company leaves behind this fuckery of pretense managing and this importance of hierarchy and talking down to the bottom feeders, well, until then you try to do something about it. And don't at any cost let it affect you. Just log in like Maya logging into her shift being like, this is my side job. I don't care about it. I know that this makes me money. Don't think about it. Think of it as a side job. Your life is your main job. Your mental health is your main job. Staying sane is your fucking main job. This is a side thing. It just brings you profit. Ignore it. Ignore it completely. So you log on to just just before every shift. Make sure you have a pep talk with yourself. You explain to yourself who the fuck you are and who they think they are. And then just like see that from that perspective. And then the hierarchy switches in your head immediately. And you know you're the shit. You just don't tell anybody you're the shit because technically you're not. But you get what I mean. You are the shit that matters to you. And that's all that matters. Because now you have your priorities straight and your mental health is number one. And your life is your job. And that's it. And until your company fixes itself, you just keep doing what you're doing. Every single shift you keep giving yourself a pep talk. You keep calling out bullshit management strategies. And most importantly, you keep making this world a better place. One motive at a time. <laughs> Bye now. Bye fuckers. Get you, sexy skunk, staying after hours for Herbie. Oh, oh, for Herbie. You stayed for the good old Herbie. Oh, Herbie appreciates you. Oh, yeah, what's your name? Is your name Chris? Can you take your pants off, Chris? Oh, oh, you have your shorts on today. Yes, Chris, yes. You stay here, young blood. You stay with me. Oh, yeah. I talk like this because I have no teeth. But I have sexual intentions. Oh, yeah. Okay, Herbie's gotta go now. Stay sexy, all the creases out there. Okay, stay sexy. Yeah, oh, Herbie out.